0: Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the SRA podcast. This is your host Alex Himva back for another week and with us this week is recurring official unofficial co-host Faye uh, back to Hello. Bless us with her voice. And musical talents this episode, because this is, in fact, the musical episode. So the rest of this episode will be done entirely in song format. So brace yourselves.
1: Got some help from Lin Manuel Miranda. We really, we really put it together, I think.
0: Uh, I had to actually check if that made the episode right, because I couldn't remember if we were on episode 14 or 15. So. That's my mental state right now, listeners. So this will be absolutely fantastic. We're going to kick the show off with a uh, discussion about a one John Brown, who yesterday as we record this, so Tuesday, uh, or no, October 16th, this day in history, 159 years ago, John Brown began his raid on Harper's Ferry. To steal the government's guns and distribute them to the slaves and start an uprising. Um, unfortunately, the raid didn't go very good. There was, there was, uh, some problems. It kind of got leaked because John Brown had an issue of telling everyone and their dog about his plans because he was a very forward guy. He was not a very secretive guy. You have guy.
1: to admire his enthusiasm. He
0: was extremely enthusiastic. And as a Kansan, I am a proud john brown rememberer uh we have a gigantic memorial painting of him in the state capital uh fun fact as far as anyone is aware that i have seen at least uh kansas is the only state to have a memorial put up in their state house to a convicted traitor um
1: that is interesting.
0: So even with all these southern states with all these uh Confederate statues, this is worth uh f- just as a historical tidbit that most Confederate officials and uh generals and officers and people of high rank within the Confederacy received blanket pardons uh, in exchange for vowing to, you know, never never Commit treason again. They get a pardon for their past treasonous acts if they just, you know, agreed not to. So most of them got pardons or things of that nature to clean their records up. And then all of stuff happened in Reconstruction and the end of it that got their records salvaged. So even with all of the Confederate imagery in the South, Kansas still is the only state with a convicted traitor pictured in their statehouse.
1: You know, it's sort of interesting, the different views that you get on John Brown. I was raised in a number of different states. I was in a number of different school systems. So uh, I got like different impressions of John Brown growing up, uh, particularly in Virginia and Texas. John Brown was presented in the textbooks and by the teachers as a murderous psychopath who, who was, had crazy radical political views and went out and killed a bunch of people and started the Civil War. Oh, he was awful. But then in Ohio, it was, oh, John Brown was a great abolitionist who was willing to put his life on the line in the name of freeing the slaves and he was a great man and it's really interesting how there's these two different narratives in our country about who John Brown was I mean I think you and I are both on the same page I think John Brown uh, arguably a hero definitely a murderer uh, for the cause of abolition um, honestly a figure in American history who I think deserves a lot more recognition but it's 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 weird how there's other people who just completely vilify him. I'm not sure how many figures in American history are more polarizing than that.
0: Yeah. John Brown is one of those guys that if you go and read through his life story, I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing that um, of course, there's a lot of historical stuff going on with that too. And you can look at like how historians viewed him and wrote about him during the different eras of American politics, during, Reco- during the Civil War, during Reconstruction, after Reconstruction, during the Jim Crow era, all these different interpretations of him throughout the year. But when you look at his stories and what he did, his actions, I mean, it's, it's very clear that even though the South, uh, many Southern states uh, back then and now, still portray him as a murderous psychopath i mean he definitely had very extreme ways of getting what he wanted done done but at the same time if you look through his life story you can see that this did not start out with this way with him that he did not start out from day one of saying we gotta go kill all the slavers and he he did a whole lot of things he's uh make sure I get the name right. I think it's the Gideons that he started. He started the League of Gileites. And so the the League of Gileites were acted as a militia that they protected slaves as they fled the South. And they, even though, you know, he kind of got his start in this of... being in a a, of course in a militia-like group of being in this armed security role as it were to protect these slaves um at the same time that wasn't taking direct action that was in a self-defense role of defending uh, fleeing slaves that were trying to get to the north so that they could be free and uh it's worth noting that he was very successful in this that uh from the founding of the League of Gileadites, no freedman was ever brought back into slavery in Springfield. Um, it It is a really successful group, a really successful militia group that, that that did a lot of good work. But what kind of took John Brown to where he, he would end up was going and seeing what was happening in Kansas, that, of course, we have bleeding Kansas and we have all this violence in Kansas and this was because at this time so much was going on that that so many compromises that the nation had made to keep the balance of power between the slave states and the free states uh, at at in equal they a lot of those compromises had been taken away and now it was a free fall and of course each side wanted to get more seats in the Senate so that it could potentially put its will against the other. And the South was very fearful of this, of course, because many of the federal territories were generally uh, pro-free state. And so, of course, they wanted uh, to act against this. And in Kansas, a lot of slavers from Missouri and a lot of people sympathetic to slavery crossed the border into Kansas and on numerous occasions tried to hold multiple votes to enact a slave state constitution, uh, multiple cities were burned. Lawrence was burned. Topeka was partially burned. There was, there was a lot of burning going on. There was a lot of fighting. And John Brown read about this and saw the news coming out of Kansas and realized he, he had a calling and had to come. That it was actually his sons, that some of his sons were out in the Kansas territory, settling in the Kansas territory, and he heard from them that that this was going on and that many of the, uh, pro free state, uh, folks out there were not prepared for this. And so often it is that, th- that people who are on this, uh, progressive side of history, as it were, are unprepared to deal with the fact that, uh, the forces against them are very much ready to use violence. And so, and so yes, for a while, the free state supporters in Kansas had very little success in fighting back the pro-slavery forces.
1: I think it's worth noting how uh, Southerners are so quick to condemn John Brown for the violence at Harper's Ferry, but I think that doesn't really compare to the violence perpetrated in the name of slavery. I mean, obviously, Bleeding Kansas and... When when you talk about bleeding Kansas, a, a lot of people might not be familiar with the history there. But there were actu- there was an actual near military conflict uh, in Kansas. Armed posse's, whole companies of men raiding towns. There was, I believe, a cannon uh, used in a number of actions that was you know captured back and forth by the various sides. People built forts or built fortified buildings. This was all done with the by the south it was mostly instigated by the south with the intent of preventing free state settlers from living in kansas they were willing to use violence to protect the institution of slavery and they were willing to shoot people burn their homes run them out of town in order to get an edge in an election to make this particular patch of ground a place where they could own slaves and you know, you compare that to, you know, the relatively small number of people killed at Harper's Ferry, and there's no comparison. That's not even bringing into the equation that the enormous inherent violence of the slavery system, the, uh, the whips and chains of the plantation system and runaway slaves who were shot, the rape and murder. I think it's Extremely hypocritical for anyone to accuse John Brown of being excessively violent when he was fighting against a system that was so egregious in its violence, in its violence, and its depravity that I don't think any fair comparison of that kind could be made.
0: Absolutely not. And I'd like to take a quote that folks can find that uh, from a pro-slavery newspaper writer, uh, Benjamin Stringfellow. So he he was quoted as saying that the pro-slavery forces are determined to repel this northern invasion and make Kansas a slave state. Though our rivers should be covered with the blood of their victims and the carcasses of the abolitionists should be so numerous and territorious to breed disease and sickness, we will not be deterred in our purpose. Uh, I mean, these, these folks actively calling for violence and making themselves out to be the victim. And this is what always happens, that these uh, the these these anti-freedom, right-weaning uh, forces throughout history always make themselves out to be the victim. That they're just repelling the invasion. That they're the ones that are being invaded. And that, that it's not that, you know, they themselves are the invaders. And that uh, their violence is always justified. And that the other side is always in the wrong Uh, even though they are upholding an inherently cruel, inherently vicious, inherently morally bankrupt system. And so, yes, of course, uh, John Brown saw this, and he had family in in Kansas. And it's it's the sort of situation that uh, he – how can we judge him now – and say, oh, well, you know, he should have, he should have taken the higher road. And this is what, you know, the liberal, uh, lay of thinking would be as well. Maybe he should have just, you know, talked, talked more. He should have, he should have petitioned against the system. He should have brought his case before Congress. He should have done this. He should have done that. Why does he have to kill people? And it's one of those situations that, uh, violence is not good because violence is, Inherently destructive, but at the same time, when dealing with people who are unafraid and completely willing to enact violence, you must be prepared to defend yourself against them and self-defense and the defense of a community under attack well, that has long historical and philosophical bases that it's it, it's it's ridiculous to try to say, well, if only he had, if only he had gone through the system because the system had failed, that was the problem. And when he brought it up to people like Frederick Douglass or William Garrison, they opposed it. They were believers in the system. They thought that if they could just, if they could just convince enough people, if they could just push the system in the right direction, that this would all be resolved. But that had been tried for almost a century in American politics that from the inception of the nation, what almost broke the nation in the beginning was the issue of slavery. this was the 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 defining issue. Of the founding fathers when they deliberated at the Constitutional Convention was this sheer divide between the slave states and the free states. This was a defining issue at the birth of the nation, and it was a defining issue going into the Civil War. And that was because for a hundred years almost, they had tried to push the system towards abolition and they had done piecemeal steps. Like Thomas Jefferson banning the international trade of slaves, but, but of keeping the domestic trade. And of course, by the time that happened, there was a large enough slave population in America that, that it did nothing to affect it. That The international slave trade had practically ceased to ex- matter at that point in American history.
1: They actually created uh, systems where they would breed slaves. Uh, to create new slaves, literally treating human beings like cattle. And I I think that a good way of looking at it is that the United States was founded in a revolution on the basis of the intolerable conditions imposed on them by King George. So America is founded on the idea of the right of rebellion, the right of revolution against an intolerable system. I can think of no system more intolerable than the system of chattel slavery in the Americas in the 19th century. I think that that is, you know, in comparison, some people try to make, you know, comparisons to ancient slavery, to the Israelites, they try to make comparisons to indentured servitude. But if you look at the conditions and the systematic application of chattel slavery, I think it is probably the most evil system ever conceived of by man i would place it on a par with the holocaust and uh that's a part of our american history and so i think that condemning someone if you condemn someone for encouraging or participating in a slave revolt the way that john brown did uh the intent of capturing Harper's Ferry was to capture weapons to arm slaves. If you condemn the right of slaves to rebel against their slave masters, then how can you possibly justify the rebellion of the colonists against Great Britain when the intolerable conditions that they were were under were taxes on sugar and tea? It's, it's ridiculous. I, I, I really think that there's no question in my mind at least that john brown's actions while debatable in their efficacy were morally justified
0: absolutely and it's it's the sort of thing that people have this split image in their minds uh, and this is the thing that even as somebody may condemn john brown for his actions There are so many other events that we hold up in popular culture around this, exactly like the foundation of America, the foundation of America in revolt against a tyrant, or things like, like the Spartans and 300, that this idea of uh, holding back uh, this slaver Persian nation, which is completely historically inaccurate. That's not, that's not at all how it happened, but Nonetheless, we have this cultural perception of here is, here is Western civilization standing strong and fighting against uh, these slavers. Or we have things like Spartacus of the slave uprisings in the Roman Empire. And we have, we have movies and cultural milestones made out of this. And we have this big thing of rising up against slavery. And it's a, it's a notion anyone can get behind, because none of us want to be uh, subjugated under another, and so uh, we can all get behind that, except when it comes to our own history. Because the problem is that when confronted with a man like John Brown, who went and took the logical extent, that if the system cannot be changed from within, then it must be changed from without. Uh, th- th- by taking it to that extent, it, it makes people very uncomfortable. Because at that point, people people have to look around and and conceptualize that this is part of our history, and that 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 an institution as heinous and as extreme as chattel slavery existed and was so terrible that it drove a man to extreme ends, and they are very extreme ends. I mean, he butchered slave supporting families. I mean, he he very much. Uh, Butcher is the correct word for it, and he went and fought basically an armed insurrection. It was a very short lived and not very successful one, but at the same time, history has held him in, history has vindicated him because it was John Brown's actions that convinced the South that this was what's going to happen. And it was really what a lot of historians can say instigated the Civil War was that this totem that, that the North would not be satisfied with working within the system, which the system had protected the South for almost a century in America, that it had always been very favorable to the Southern slave states because the status quo was favorable to the slave states. And so it, it was, With his death, the catalyst that brought about the Civil War and brought about the end of slavery, as it were, that even though his attempt, even though his battle was lost, nonetheless, the war, the war still was fought. I would like to draw this segment to a bit of a close by uh, recounting some of the words from John Brown's last speech uh before the court when he was convicted of treason and sentenced to death that uh he he said uh, just a great quote that i i really like to bring up that and this is why john brown is so so revered in leftist circles that uh, even though he might not have had much an opinion on the working class rights to uh, the modes of production uh, he he, he was still very much grounded in this leftist thought of class struggle. And so, he, he, he quoted, uh, quoting him from before the court, he said, I have another objection, and that is, it is unjust that I should suffer such a penalty, had I interfered in the manner which I admit, and which I admit has been fairly proved, for I admire the truthfulness and candor of the greater portion of the witnesses who have testified in this case. Had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and had suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right, and every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. I think that just – I think that illustrates the class struggle right there in those words, that the ruling class, the capitalist class, the landed class, they – when they do something, it is worthy exactly. of reward. And when the working class, when the common man does something like this, uh, when when the founding fathers rise up against King George, it is a cause of reward. It is a, It is an act worthy of reward. But when John Brown rises up against a corrupt and vile and heinous institution, it is cause for death. With that, we will conclude the segment with a excellent musical number that our very own Indeed. Faye has actually recorded. So, if you thought I was joking about the musical segment, uh, jokes on you. So we will we will now play this little jaunty tune that Faye has recorded and uh, appreciate it in our various listening spaces, I suppose. So insert music here.
1: This is John Brown's Body.
2: John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave While weep the sons of whom truly ventured all to save. Though he lost his life in battle, while fighting for the slave, his soul is marching on on oh. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his soul is marching on. He captured Harper's Ferry with his ninety men so few, and frightened old Virginie till she trembled through and through. They hung him for a traitor, they themselves the traitor crew, but his soul is marching on. Cause for all the world to see. From Washington to Kansas rang the bells of liberty. As Christ died to make men holy, John Brown died to set men free. And his soul is marching on.
0: Well, after that lovely intermission with some lovely tunes, we will transition into the modern day. We'll move from this mid-1800s historical set piece that went on for a surprising amount of time and discuss some more uh, modern news, as it were. So, you know, time's a change, but history always seems to repeat itself one way or the other, so... A lot of things have been in the news recently, and a lot of things have been uh, violent in the news. People might have noticed that uh, there's there's been kind of a pattern emerging in the American news about uh, groups like the Proud Boys. Uh, Proud Boys have shown up quite a few news articles recently, and funny thing is, they seem to keep attacking people and getting away with it and talking about how they have connections in police forces and... Uh, even when people like, uh, Governor Kumeo uh, says that he's going to look into them and investigate them, he then also has to say, Oh, we're also going to look into Antifa too. Because, you know, even as the Proud Boys on video in front of the cops beat people's ribs to a pulp, uh, we, we have to make sure we're fair and balanced because that's both sides, both sides, people, both sides are wrong. The right is long, but the left is wrong. Haven't you ever heard of horseshoe theory? Everything that uh, you can't even tell the difference between a Nazi and a anarchist communist. They know differences. They're both the same because I read horseshoe theory in some political science book at some point And centricism is the only way to go. That's what i Radical
1: centrism. Yeah. The Proud Boys... Oh man, I believe we talked a couple of episodes about the events in Louisville where uh, Proud Boys assaulted DSA members uh, on a restaurant patio, uh, assaulted them with pepper spray, were talked to by the cops and then released without being searched afterwards, and no charges were pressed. Disp- despite this being a completely, you know, unprovoked except perhaps by words, a completely unprovoked attack, but. Honestly, that's sort of pales in comparison. Uh, as Alex was talking about, obviously, I, most people listening to this podcast should have heard by now about the uh, incident in New York. So, I think it's worth bringing up just how insane the series of series of events was. Uh, the Proud Boys were invited to the GOP convention center in New York uh, and asked. You know, we're allowed to do an event there. And that event included um, Gavin McInnes, the fo- one of the primary founders of the Prop Boys. Um, interesting person. Um, used, a, used a dildo on a live video to own the libs for some reason. Whatever floats your boat. But uh, he uh, brought a plastic samurai sword, a katana, a reproduction. Um, and... Glasses with racist Japanese eyes painted on them and reenacted the assassination of a Japanese socialist politician uh, from the 1950s. And then they left the building and encountered Antifa members who were involved in some sort of uh, vandalism, graffiti, or some such. A fight broke out. Uh, Antifa is accused of throwing bottles and uh, bricks and other such things, and um, Three Antifa members were swarmed by an entire crowd of Proud Boys who then took turns kicking the leftists uh, while they were on the ground, stomping them, you know, basically just short of killing them, uh, smashing their ribs in. Uh, Police showed up on the scene moments later while many of the Proud Boys were still present, including McGinnis, and uh, the police arrested the injured Antifa members. They, uh... Arrested them, held them for questioning. None of the Proud Boys were arrested, despite multiple witnesses and video uh, taken showing them kicking people on the ground After when they did not pose any threat to anyone. Just straight up assault and battery. Uh, the police did not arrest any of the Proud Boys. They didn't, didn't meaningfully detain them. Um... And it wasn't until a couple of days later, with pressure from the mayor's office, um, that they were, uh, finally the police, uh, said that they would investigate, that they would charge, uh, nine Proud Boys with assault. And I saw the video, there were more than nine people kicking. Uh, I would say at least a dozen, probably more, but it was more than nine. But they are going to charge these people with crimes, but only after political pressure uh, from the mayor's office. And this is insane. This is, this is actual sort of black shirt, you know, street militia fighting sort of action going on, on the part of the Proud Boys. They're celebrating the assassination of a leftist politician, then going out into the street to beat up, uh, their leftist opponents. Uh, whoever started the fight, once they were on, once Antifa was on the ground, there was no justification for the sort of brutal attacks on them while they were defenseless and unable to attack anyone. Uh, and then to not for the police not to charge them. And uh, Gavin McInnes, uh claimed that he had friends in the NYPD. Uh, shortly after the attack, he claimed, "Oh, he he has a lot of friends there," and I think that really. You know, I think a lot of liberals don't really understand the relationship between the police and the far right. Uh, the police are more right wing than almost any other group. They're more right wing than the military. They're more right wing than working class people. The police are very much a politically, uh, oriented agency. Uh, the police are not, um, the police are not a neutral force that enacts equal, uh, scrutiny and equal punishment to different groups of people. Police always side with the fascists. At every rally, the police always side with the fascists. Anytime there's any sort of major um, anytime there's any sort of major conflict between right wing provocateurs and left wing counter protesters, the police always protect the right wing and they always protect uh, you, you, you you usually see two lines of cops, both of them with their backs to the fascists, both of them facing towards the protesters. And that's the same, whether it's in New York or in Portland.
0: Yeah. And that's, it's the sort of thing that people, people have to understand why this is, because, you know, I know people uh, that, on the sort of situation i think it's worth pointing out that i, I for people who don't necessarily understand this that i know plen- plenty of people who have the mindset of well we shouldn't why why do we talk about it in this way why do we talk about it in this context because we're making it out to be that all oh, well Every single every single police officer is just a fascist waiting to grind their jackboot into your neck. And, you know, why, why do we discuss it in this manner? And it's not – the problem is people have to understand the systematic, uh, the societal, and the cultural things around this. That law enforcement by its very nature protects the status quo. That is the mission of law enforcement. Law enforcement enforces the law. And the law is the status quo. Because of this, not only does it attract people who are attracted to this idea, this idea of law and order, that you have a system of rules and you follow these rules. And so sorry if the rule is bad or unjust, you gotta follow the rule. That the law the law is the law and you have to do it. It attracts people of this nature. And because the policing... It transcends that. It transcends just things of that nature of uh, you break the law, you go to jail, because it transcends that and goes into this greater thing of becoming an enforcing organ of the state, that the will of the state is enforced through its law enforcement, even if they're not necessarily law in the books, but because of different ways police officers have discretion, they can enforce the will of the state in different ways. And this also comes back to who controls the state. And, of course, in a capitalist system, the capitalist class controls the state. Uh, no matter how democratic a nation you are, uh, money does so much more than any any particular voter block. oftentimes. It's very difficult to overcome the power of capital. And oftentimes, overcoming the power of capital is only possible with more capital, uh, or you know, people outraising budgets and such. And so, when we talk about this, we have we talk about it from the perspective as an institution that this is an enforcing arm of the state, and so it carries out the state's will. Its mission is to maintain the status quo, and that status quo is maintained by the capitalist class. And as Lenin has talked talked about in his writings, uh, it's fascism is capitalism in decay. Fascism arises as the contradictions and the flaws of capitalism become more and more apparent and cause more and more breakdowns in society. And so fascism is that response. It is the reaction to this breakdown of capitalism to try to maintain the status quo. And it is bound up in this nationalistic, uh, very xenophobic basis of trying to maintain the status quo. And so anything that is different, anything that is foreign, anything that is abnormal must be pushed away. And so the police force as an institution being charged with maintaining law and order, being charged with maintaining the status quo, always is more favorable to these fascist elements because that is what their mission is, that that they are trying to maintain the status quo. And the the fascism, these fascists arise from this reaction of trying to maintain that status quo. It's not because necessarily that every single police officer is a jackbooted thug that wants to come and stomp your rights down. It's that as an institution and as a culture, they are always going to be more preferable to people that are maintaining the status quo, that want to maintain a status quo versus leftists who demand a radical and significant change to the status quo, that these systems must be torn down and reforged. Uh, so, of course, uh, this is this is what we have to expect.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I would also like to bring up, uh, as I mentioned before with Portland, uh, the very ugly situation there. The cooperation between the police and between extreme right-wing nationalists in Portland, um... The level of cooperation and sympathy between these two groups uh, is reaching a dangerous point. Uh, several months ago, there were some. There was uh, a Patriot Prayer Rally in Portland, um, which was protested by uh, large numbers of counter protesters. Um, it's important to keep in mind that a lot of the counter-protesters are local to the city of Portland. They live in Portland, they work in Portland, they live in the nearby surrounding communities. Many of the uh, Patriot prayer people are actually from outside of Portland, they're from other parts of the state, they're from, you know, uh, particularly the eastern part on the other side of the Cascades, they're from more rural areas, some of them are from other states, California and Seattle, and even further afield, who come to Portland to invade this overwhelmingly liberal and progressive space and enforce their own right-wing views and force people to entertain their presence. When the citizens of Portland counter-protest against this, the uh, when they counter-protested against this, the police response was massive and brutal. Police began firing uh, flashbangs and tear gas grenades. You know, almost immediately on the counter-protesters, without waiting for provocation, they claimed that a bottle was thrown. There's no footage of this. If there was a thrown object. I would bet money that it was a provocateur, which the police frequently use at leftist rallies, and uh, they. Fired... And let's just
0: never forget. Just as a quick intermission, let's never forget that it's completely legal for the police to lie, and in, in the name of justice, that uh, that I mean, this is the whole point of undercover cops encouraging people to do illegal things. This this is not. This is nothing new, and cops have done very shady, underhanded things with leftist groups in America, in the United Kingdom, across the world, uh, to get exactly things like this. Exactly so they have excuses like this. Exactly,
2: and
1: this time they used it as an excuse to fire... Uh, tear gas grenades and canisters directly into the crowd, not just in an arc falling down into the crowd, but direct fire into the crowd. Uh, One processor was uh, struck in the back of the head by one of these canisters, and fortunately uh, he was wearing a helmet. Um, The nurses and paramedics said that had he not been wearing a helmet, he very likely would have died from the impact of that projectile, because these are literal firearms. They may fire tear gas canisters, less than lethal um, munitions, but when fired in a uh, direct fire roll in a straight line like you would a rifle, they can it can be just as lethal as uh, any rifle bullet. And speaking of rifle bullets, the Proud Boys uh, were at this event, and apparently a couple of them went up onto a roof overlooking the counter-protesters with a sack full of guns, long guns, rifles... And shotguns. They brought. They basically set up an overwatch position over the crowd with with rifles. It wasn't clear whether or not they had ammunition. Even if they didn't have ammo to shoot that day, it was very obviously a practice run for this sort of militaristic action in the future. But the Proud Boys went up onto a roof with rifles, overlooking the counter protesters, where they could have shot dozens of people easily um apparently the police briefly detained them took their firearms away for a couple minutes checked that they were legal gun owners and then gave the guns right back now allegedly this allegedly the police had no legal ground and no legal right to confiscate the firearms because technically open carry is allowed in portland However, I think when someone is going up onto the roof of a building at a protest with a rifle, I think that should be considered, uh, I think that can be considered probable cause that that person might maybe intend to murder someone and that maybe you shouldn't let them back up onto the roof with their guns.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the sort of situation that it's the sort of situation that this is just even though these guys have a basis for the legality of this that all i'm just i'm just open carrying my rifle up here man i just i just got my guns and it's okay for me to have my guns here and why are you bothering me and you know why bother all of all this and it's the situation that even if there's nothing can do legally about that uh the situation here is that you should probably tell somebody and the police knew that they should tell somebody because they eventually told the mayor about it who by the way is acting police commissioner for portland uh, they eventually got around to telling him that uh, it seems like though that having a big sack of guns up on a rooftop even if there's if even if you say well our hands are tied we can't we can't we can't press any charges because you know it's legal to have guns and you can carry them around wherever and whatever and whatever uh, you should probably tell somebody. Like that's 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 information that's valuable for people to know. They waited and the for reason, four months. Exactly. Uh, the reason you you hold on to that is because you know that if you announce that. If you know that if you announce that and say, well, you know, we caught all these guys with a bunch of guns up on the roof and they're very obviously in a situation where it's an overwatch position and, you know, could easily start sniping people at the crowd. It's, they, they withheld that information exactly because they knew what the reaction would be, which is complete and utter outrage. And, and it, it means that people have to think about this now when they're going to protest people have to think in the back of their head is this about to turn into f***ing stalingrad uh, am i about to experience urban warfare and uh, the police i i i imagine the police themselves are also sweating about this because i really uh, even trained firearm specialists uh, even sharpshooters uh, don't always hit their targets. And so I'm sure the police themselves probably have a vested interest in the Proud Boys not setting up sniper positions and starting to shoot because it puts them at risk too of getting hit by a stray bullet. And I look at it as the sort of situation that it's just, it's just obvious that there's so much going on that we are not seeing and how many other times has this happened how many other times has this happened and somebody not told the public about it how many times has uh, a a right-wing militia group put up this and not been found when does this start to be an issue when do those people finally decide that they're going to take the shot and at that point i mean at that point we can just say things have Things have gone beyond repair at that point. The moment that there's fucking sniper fights in the streets. That's just the... That's that's a really... I don't even know what happens at that point, honestly. That's just so far out there, it's it's hard to even discuss. But here we are. So, uh, there's... I wish I could have something more insightful to say about this, or have suggestions for people. But uh, the fact of the matter is, if somebody's got you in sniper sights and they hit you, there ain't much you're going to do about that, unfortunately. That you can you can use body armor, you can get Type Three, Type Four plates. Uh, if they got a good bullet, if they got a good rifle, uh, good luck is all I can say. Good luck and hope they don't hit anything vital. Is how that's going to work unfortunately, a high-powered rifle, especially something that's made for long-distance shooting, there's there's not a whole lot you can do with armor to to fix that. There's prevention...
1: And armor-piercing ammunition is easier to find than people think. It's legal in most of the country.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's... It, people can find stuff that takes down armored cars with relative ease. So, it's, it's the sort of situation that you don't want to be in the situation is basically how that works and if you find yourself in that situation shit's gone so bad that i i can't give you much valuable advice at that point the the game the nature of the game has fundamentally changed if that happens so my best advice would be take cover and flee at that point because you're going to need a lot different options to deal with Proud Boys or Oath Keepers or somebody sniping you. And I'd like to remind everyone that the Oath Keepers are running a program wherein they talk about being a militia that the president can call up to fight these so-called violent leftists and hunt down the violent left. They have a literal training program about this. There is literally a group of people in this country being trained right now to hunt leftists. And they're making it clear that they're at the president's beck and call, if he so wishes. Uh, and given that he continues to call the milk toast, uh, most uh, ivory tower, hands-off uh, members of the Democratic Party uh, violent, if he thinks they're violent, then... Uh, I, I really hope that he never finds all these gritty memes that have been going around the internet because he's probably not going to have a good reaction to that. So if, if he thinks somebody like Diane Feinstein is a violent menace against society, which she is a menace against society, but I don't think she very much counts as violent. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's not a good situation to be in. And I didn't mention this on the last podcast, it's been a little while now, but I hope everyone appreciated and enjoyed their presidential alert text that now the president can get to your phone everywhere all at once, which would be really handy if you know uh, there was ever a situation where you needed to contact huge amounts of citizens at once and be like, hey, guys, something's happening. Uh, maybe rise up and take arms. You know, that that. That could just never go wrong. That could never go wrong.
1: No way to misuse that at all.
0: Though who am I kidding? I mean, that's the the nightmare scenario. But more likely is that Trump's just going to feel lonely one day. And he's going to text everyone and be like, hey, what's up?
1: I'm expecting a dick pic. (laughs) You know. I'm really curious whether or not it actually looks like Toad.
0: I don't even want to think about that. I, I successfully removed that from my brain until you just mentioned that. So thanks. Thanks
1: a lot. You're welcome. You're welcome. Let's lighten the mood a little bit. So uh, something interesting happened to a couple of friends of ours um, over at the Guillotine podcast. Uh, Brett and Bones, uh, the lovely hosts of that uh, only slightly more apocalyptic podcast, Um, were recently featured on the Alex Jones Show, of all places. Apparently, uh, Bones made a thread on Twitter, uh, uh, basically asking for people's input on how they would engage in a leftist insurrection. Um, And uh, obviously, a great many right-wingers found this alarming. Never mind that I've seen this sort of discussion going around right-wing internet forums for literally decades um this sort of fantasizing about you know about revolt or revolution i live
0: next to a guy who has a the south will rise again flag so you know
1: yeah you know this this sort of rhetoric the right engages in all the time uh, apparently a bunch of right-wingers saw leftists engaging it uh, a scary florida swamp wizard <laughs> communist revolutionary <laughs> um and uh oh the they had to go and tell daddy uh they had to go tell daddy jones about the scary leftists that are making them making them wet their pants talking about this stuff on twitter um, uh i think the most interesting takeaway though is that uh alex jones um didn't even really look into the guillotine podcast very much didn't even really look into uh brett and bones history their podcast what they'd said because they, they've said a lot more um provocative things in the past than just simply talking about insurrection and ambush tactics um they I mean, hell, they, they introduce most of their episodes talking about how they want to fundraise money to rent a helicopter and dump a bucket of literal human feces on top of Alex Jones's house. You'd think if Jones listened to a single episode of their podcast, he would have heard that and maybe had some comment on the fact that, uh, they want to, uh, that they want to make like a bird on his head, <laughs> but uh, apparently Alex Jones uh, doesn't really do any research for his shows. I don't know why I, why I'm shocked by this, but you know I always assumed he at least did a, a modicum of poking around the stories that he talks about. Um, but apparently he wasn't. When he saw this communist talking about an insurrection on Twitter, he he didn't want to know anything more about it. He just. Well, I know everything I need to know. I just need to go on there. And uh, didn't research the people making the comments at all.
0: Pretty much. I mean, this is just standard fare for, you know, the type of show that Alex Jones runs. And, you know, Alex Jones, if, you, if you're listening to this right now, because I feel like you must have some kind of bot trolling the internet, waiting for your name to be mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, if, if you're listening to this, or if you're the intern... If you're Alex Jones' intern, first of all, I pity your soul, and may God have mercy on I'm so on it. sorry. Um, also, please mention me to your boss, because I could really use the view bump. Because you see, in my metrics, it doesn't matter if it's a good view or a bad view. It's just a view. So if I get 10,000 angry right-wingers watching my videos, I will be completely satisfied. I just said videos, even though this is an audio format, but whatever i'm i am channeling alex jones right now and the truth does not matter and who views my podcast does not matter i just want the views i crave them so please please mention me to your boss in seriousness though uh our comrades at the ohio sra got uh mentioned in his show a screenshot of their uh patron saint got uh viewed by alex jones and so they had a rough time of it for a week or so of just chuds filling there
1: and that that really offended me because the screenshot was of a um of a picture they posted i think i actually sent it out a while before but uh it's uh our lady of self-defense um it's a girl in a denim jacket with some rose tattoos and other stuff. And she has a halo of self-defense tools above her head. Guns, um, you know, a mace, uh, tasers, just knives, various self-defense implements. And uh, But at the bottom it says Our Lady of Self-Defense. When Alex Jones took a screenshot, they cropped out the Our Lady of Self-Defense part. And so it was just a picture of a woman with a bunch of weapons above her head. Which, without the context of this being a pro-self-defense poster makes it look much more violent and threatening than it actually is. This sort of, you know, just blatant... uh, This malicious framing of their ideological opponents is ubiquitous across the right wing, whether it be Sean Hannity or Alex Jones. They always edit and frame and distort their opponents in such a way to always paint them in the most violent light possible uh, in order to justify their preemptive violence against them.
0: Pretty much. I, the Lies, misinformation, illusion, uh, obfuscation, these are all tactics that are well known to the right and frequently used. And <clears throat> it's, it's no surprise that somebody in Alex Jones's position, you know, he's... He's got a business to run, and that of course people use that as an excuse. But you know, when your business is peddling lies that you know get people hurt, that uh, Pizza Gate, uh, he's peddled this more than once. And a guy literally showed up to some random pizza parlor and with a gun and was like. Where's all the kidnapped children in the basement? I'm here to free the children. And
1: he even fired a shot into their tiller machine.
0: Yes. Like it would have been the worst day ever for that clerk manning the front desk. And, uh, words have effects. I mean, that that's the thing. Words have effects. And even us just, you know, talking at night, having a good time. I'm sure these things have effects too. I, Really hope nobody goes and does crazy shit because of what I say. I'm not that influential, guys. Feel free to listen to me, but don't do crazy shit because I said something. Do your research. That's what I always encourage. That's why I have links in the show notes. Do your research. This is just here to, you know, listen to some folks talk and give you a jumping off point. Um, do research, do genuine research. And don't do crazy shit because somebody on the internet told you to. Uh, that that's, that's what right-wingers do. And uh, what makes us a little bit better than them, I would hope, is that we can actually do some research and back up our beliefs with facts and reason versus going into a pizza parlor because you heard on the internet by the local charlatan who makes his living off of enraging people by saying that uh, they have child slaves locked up in the basement and that hillary clinton is you know illuminati or whatever let us let us turn our eyes to another state um the, the middle east the middle east that just the happiest place on earth as we all know the, the the best the best place to be for anyone is the middle east because it is so prosperous giving us algebra and things of that nature um unfortunately not all as well in the middle east there's there's some there's some disputes we'll go ahead and say and uh unfortunately uh, the saudis are back at it so um the the saudis they're not known to be nice their government is not known to be very nice um and they they recently they had a they had a falling out as it were a disagreement with a uh Particular fellow, uh, Jamil. I'll try to actually pronounce this right. Uh, Jamil Kasher Kashogi, Kashagi. Uh, he he was a journalist, and he did not uh, have kind things to say about the Saudi Arabian government. Uh, he had some not favorable opinions of them that he published in his works. Um, a lot of a lot of confusion around this that there's a lot of conflicting stories about uh what's going on with him
1: there are a lot of conflicting stories but i think there's only one credible story in this uh current uh, understanding of the situation um yeah so uh mr khashoggi uh, was a citizen of saudi arabia who uh, put himself into self-exile in fear of the Saudi government after he criticized them. Uh, He fled to America, um, and he worked as an op-ed writer for the Washington Post, as a a journalist, but an opinion journalist. He wasn't, you know, uh, out doing investigations necessarily, but he was, you know, uh, he was an associate of the Washington Post. He traveled, uh, he visited Europe, he visited various places, um... He was in Turkey and he needed, he was planning to uh, marry his fiancee and uh, he was informed by the Saudi Arabian government that it would be not, he could not be legally married to his wife uh, without certain paperwork. Uh, which could not be mailed, and that he would need to go to a Saudi Arabian embassy in order to pick the paperwork up. So he went to the Saudi embassy in Istanbul uh, with his wife, and uh, you know he went into the embassy alone and told his wife to wait for him, that he would be back soon, that he was going to get the papers and come back out. He entered the Saudi Arabian embassy, and he never left it alive. Now, <clears throat> at this point, uh, the tale is a little bit murky. However, uh, just... Uh, this afternoon, uh, as we are recording this, um, a, the Turkish authorities have said that they have a recording from inside the Saudi Arabian Embassy because of course, governments spy on each other's embassies all the time. It's habitual, it's habitual. Um, they have They claim to have audio evidence of uh, Mr. Khashoggi being tortured and killed over the course of seven minutes. Uh, and then his body dismembered and the room sterilized uh, over the next couple of hours. Um, and they say that there are 15 Saudi Arabian nationals who are responsible, who entered the country at the same time, um, ahead of Mr. Kushagi going to the embassy and then left shortly afterwards uh, and returned to Saudi Arabia. These officials included uh, high-ranking Saudi officials as well as regular Saudi Arabian citizens. The details of the uh, that are described within the audio tape are horrific and gruesome. Um, Alex, do you want to go into any detail on that, or is that something that we'd maybe want to leave out?
0: Um, I will spare the gorier bits, but uh, if for folks who are listening, this is probably about the time of the show that uh, we will be discussing. Not fun things so if you want to go ahead and skip ahead i will go ahead and put a timestamp in the show notes of when this conversation is over for those who do not wish to listen to something like this uh so with that warning uh going ahead basically if people thought that you know john brown dismembering people in kansas of uh, dismembering slavery supporters um this is just a truly horrific situation that they, they literally had a bone saw and they dismembered this man. They they tortured and dismembered him alive before killing him. Um, so this is the sort of tactic you do when you want to make a message. This is a sort of horrifying thing that it, it sends a message. And this is exactly what the Saudis want to do. The Saudi Arabian government is interested in... In upholding its oppressive, uh, I will go ahead and say backwards regime. And I don't say that from the context of, you know, the, the way the right wingers use the term backwards. I say backwards because it is a literal monarchy. This is a monarchy that exists in the modern day and has no right to exist in the modern day. Not in a world where we have the concept and the application of self-determination by the people of a country. There is no place for a bloodline monarchy in this world. And the monarchy will do anything in its power to maintain itself. And, and more than anything else, I, I, I find myself infuriated by this situation because, because of the comments made from the U.S. government that, you know, at least the Saudi Arabian it's, – it's a, it's a oppressive, re- regressive situation, uh, but at least they're looking out for themselves in a sense – that, that at least I can understand why a, a monarchy would take these sorts of actions, because it is a existential threat against them. When people speak out against our monarchy, we know how this ends with monarchies. We've seen this happen in the past. You, there is a very clear thing of what happens when monarchies fall, and it usually doesn't end well for the sitting monarch or their family so at least they have some amount uh, that they, they can be justified by or that they that they can see justification in whereas uh, the us government the us government is defending this because of greed this is just plain old fashioned greed that this is this is the sort
1: they have the us government has 100 billion reasons to support Saudi Arabia in this. And each of those reasons is named George Washington. Um, Saudi Arabia is a major customer of the US military industrial uh, complex, um, not least of which we've mentioned before the war in Yemen, which is uh, being pursued. Uh, Saudi Arabia is using American-made bombs to murder buses full of school children and commit other heinous acts and enforce a blockade that has caused starvation and uh, disease, which is simply indescribable. It's it's hard to imagine such conditions existing in the present world. You know, and the scale of that sort of thing, really, you know, it sort of dwarfs the more personal forms of violence uh, that they have pursued against Mr. Khashoggi. But I think it's... I'm reminded of a section in *Discipline and Punish* by Michel Foucault that talked about how monarchies view the human body in a different way than liberal societies, and that they view, um, whereas liberal societies view the relationship between a person and the state as being abstract and legal. Uh, in a monarchy, they feel that the body of their subjects are the property, are the uh, property of the crown. And so even though Mr. Khashoggi had left Saudi Arabia, even though he was living in the United States, even though he was in a different country at the time of his death, the Saudi Arabian monarchy still felt that they owned his body and that they had the right to use disgusting torture on this man uh, to create an example of him and to exact pain and vengeance for the crime of daring to speak out against the king and against Prince Salman. And you know this is it's really people will bring up uh islam and they'll bring up the uh you know various islamophobic talking points but i believe that the the true root of the evil scene in the middle east doesn't come from their religion it doesn't come from their beliefs about allah or from the hadiths necessarily that they read religion can be used to justify things but it it often doesn't it isn't the ideological basis for most people the ideological basis for most of the Middle East is still fundamentally a uh, based on the idea of hereditary right and of divine right— of people to rule, even in somewhat more liberal uh, societies, but especially in Saudi Arabia. it It is a uh, backwards form of government. It's a form of government which has been abolished in most of the world for a reason, and it still persists. And the persistence of a monarchy in the 21st century means that that monarchy is going to engage in literally medieval behavior, including the deliberate torture and execution of a person for simply criticizing uh, the crown it's it's an inevitability at this point
0: yeah and then you know again like i can see coming from their standpoint that it's an institution that will die that this no monarchy is eternal and the progress of history will come around and it is only a delaying tactic on uh, these royals parts to delay the inevitable, uh, but I, I just find myself at a loss of words for the actions of our officials and of our president, who took to Twitter, who took to the press, and he said, and I quote, here we go again with, you know, you're guilty until proven innocent. We just went through that with Justice Kavanaugh, and he was innocent all the way, as far as I'm concerned. And in this instance, well, I in this that. instance, in this very instance, he is taking the brutal murder of a man whose crime was speaking out against a repressive form of government and a repressive state uh, whose only crime was to defy a repressive authority. And here he is, and he's comparing it to the fact that Kavanaugh just couldn't stop raping people and sexually assaulting people through his youth and uh, because because trump's buddy got got uh, all these accusations against him and all of these corroborated accusations against him and had an fbi investigation against him that wasn't allowed to go through its full course because they wanted to railroad uh, justice through because the republicans this party of integrity and honor and decorum and whatever other bullshit they decide to spout this week. I can't. (coughs) They just want to win. They just want to own the libs. That's just what they're concerned about now. And got it through with 50 votes in the Senate, just barely on the cusp of being able to actually pass. He's comparing that situation with the death of a man who, who had his wife waiting outside who would never see her, her fiancé again and it's just it's mind-boggling and it's infuriating and Trump's out here defending his buddies the Saudi Arabians and uh, the, the royals of Saudi Arabia because he went over there and they threw him a nice party and they said nice things about him so here he is defending them when they at least, I mean, you can see Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, former Kansas Congressman. You know, he's he's up there doing his job as Secretary of State of damage control of trying to keep uh, this hundred billion dollar deal, uh, more than that, really, with all the stuff we send to Saudi Arabia, and he's trying to keep that uh, and still despicable. Still, uh, you should have the moral fortitude to be able to know when the even though your job description is uphold whatever the government says it, it's not Would not be the first time and it won't be the last time that somebody in a high government position had to take a step back and realize that their moral center said they must speak against this and you know being involved in the CIA I'm sure Mike Pompeo's seen a lot of shady shit so who knows but it's, it's the sort of situation that Donald Trump is not beholden to anything in, in the sense that he is, he is the head of state. He is the head of government. He can issue opinions like this and he issues opinions all day long. I mean, if we, we get tired of his opinions is how much he issues his opinions. He is, he made a campaign uh, promise of speaking his mind. And so where is uh, Donald Trump? the guy who supposedly speaks it as it is uh, speaking out against this and the answer he's not going to because he's buddies with these people and it's we can we can talk about you know Yemen we can talk about all the people dying in Yemen the the the, the state of the country because of US arms sold to Saudi Arabia so that we they can enact their cruel sense of uh, imperialism, of a literal monarchy trying to get a colonial state. Uh, But this is a catalyzing moment. And unfortunately, I don't see much coming from it. Because we know, we've known for a while, that Saudi Arabia was involved in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. We know, we have known for a while, that it's very likely that the Saudi Arabian government was involved in some fashion, be it funding, be it training, be it whatever, to the point that we passed a bill in Congress and overrode a presidential veto that allows people to sue Saudi Arabia for exactly that, for their involvement in 9-11. Uh, as, and if the death, if the deaths of thousands of American citizens couldn't get us to turn against the Saudi Arabians, uh, and the saudi arabian government uh, unfortunately it, it seems like i i don't have a lot of faith that the the death of one of their citizens even though he was a permanent us resident even though he was in, in the process of naturalizing to the us i don't think his death's going to change the public opinion and that's that's a really shitty situation
2: definitely <sighs>
0: Well, I think we have about time for one more story for the night. So we will we will uh, conclude this episode after this brief intermission that if you have enjoyed this episode and the various rants I'm going on, because I'll be completely honest, my mental state, it's not the best today. I, I am not in the mood to deal with a lot of shit, but I, I nonetheless feel obligation to my listeners to make sure that I make these episodes and put them out on time and things of that nature. So here we are, and maybe it makes for a more entertaining video or episode. See, I keep saying video. That's where my mental state is. I think I'm recording some kind of vlog right now. That's where my mental state is. So if you enjoy these episodes. And if you enjoy listening to people yell into their microphones because they're just upset with the world and can't figure out how to deal with it productively other than yell into their microphones and also do other things of organizing nature. That's why I'm involved with the SRA so I can actually make a difference in the world and do something positive with my energy. Um, If you feel like that's something you would like to support, then you can go to patreon.com slash socialistra podcast where you can chip in a few bucks that we will be having uh, various special content. We have already some special content up there, and I will be putting out a- another special episode on electoral politics here soon. Uh, most likely with Faye, who, you know, is is great for discussing these topics with. So if you, if you are interested in something like that and you would like to continue to support the show, as I do not receive compensation for this show from the organization because this is a independent show that allows me to say whatever I want to say. Um, I just license the name from the organization, but it gives me fantastic creative liberties to go on rants like this. Um, if you would toss, if you feel like supporting it, you can toss, toss a couple bucks my way. And that, that helps, that helps keep these episodes coming. And maybe one day when I'm making the big chapo bucks, you know, we can, we can just have all sorts of fantastic things i don't know where i'm going with this so i'm just gonna leave it at that and we can transition into the final story of the night which is also kind of sad and depressing but you know that's 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 this episode just
1: in a different sort of way. in
0: a different sort of way just you know that that's that's the theme of tonight it's just a lot of a lot of depressing shit is basically how this is working Anyways, student loans. Uh Americans have a trillion dollars worth of student loans. I have a lot of student loans myself. Um student loans, they're they're not the funnest and college is super expensive, especially when compared to the rest of the world and the offerings of education that the world has. Um we have a ton of student loan debt, and so of course, uh, people who go through the system. I mean, I'm going to a state college here locally, and so I get resident tuition rates and everything. Uh, when I was younger and more optimistic, uh, I got I got accepted to Virginia Tech for their physics program, and I was looking at going to Virginia Tech. And I thought that would be really cool, and I had a pathway to get into their really esteemed engineering program and i was I was looking at doing all that, and it was going to be a a fantastic time and I would have had to pay like fifteen thousand dollars in tuition and fifteen thousand dollars in dorm fees and food fees, and it was going to be like close to thirty thousand dollars a year to go to Virginia Tech. And that would have put me most likely, after scholarships and everything, uh, at over fifty, probably closer to seventy thousand dollars in student loan debt. Um, but even going to a state college like I am now, it's it's still a lot of debt to take on to you know pay for school, to help compensate and pay for you know living expenses that you're allowed to the, the living expenses that you're allowed to pay for with your student money. Um, To help compensate for the lost earnings you have while taking college, um, things of that nature, It, it really adds up on the bill. So, a lot of people graduate college, they get a job, and it's just so much to pay off, and the interest builds on it so much, compounds so much. So, people say, How can I get rid of this? Am I going to have to just live on ramen for the next 10 years while I pay this off? That doesn't sound very fun. I thought I went to college so I could, you know, make the big bucks and have a have a successful life. And so um one way that you can expel your student loans is the public service forgiveness program. So basically this was created by Congress to say, look, for people who you know give up the higher earnings that you can find in the private sector and go work for the government or go work for these nonprofits and accept lower salaries So that they can do their part to society. We'll say that if you do that and you do that for 10 years, then we'll forgive your loans. You make regular payments during those 10 years. We cut your payments down a little bit based on your income and stuff. And then after ten years, whatever's left, we just we just forgive because you've you've paid your debt to society. You you've 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 done your part. You've gone to these affected areas. You've been a teacher in a marginalized area. You've you've done your part. So we're going to forgive it. Um, great program on the surface. Great great program on the uh, on the looks of it sounds great. Um, literally, We have found out from the documents released by the Department of Education. of all applications for public service forgiveness have been denied. 99% of all applications denied. I don't know what to say about that, really.
1: The reason for this, of course, is that you're not allowed to make any mistakes. You're not allowed to have any missed payments. You're not allowed to have... Hang on, let me check, actually.
0: So the details... Of the program, that is not very forgiving. That is very true. It's not very forgiving. You don't have to make consecutive payments. There is, there's, it's not good to miss payments. Missing payments screws with things, but it's you can have non-consecutive stuff. Now, this kind of confuses people, though. It's a confusing thing because the problem is with that non-consecutive stuff is that you don't have to work at the same employer consecutively. So you could work for a nonprofit for a little while and have those payments count. And then you could switch over to another job that doesn't count. And you could switch to a job that does count. And you can have those non-consecutive payments. But then, of course, people think, well, if it's not non-consecutive, then maybe my missed payment doesn't affect me. And that can affect you. And so it, there's a, so much confusion about what qualifies, what doesn't. Uh, the article I was reading about this uh, has it that when people would call FedLoan, which is the official uh, coordinator of the public service forgiveness program, um, when people would call FedLoan and ask if their employer qualified, they couldn't give them an answer because FedLoan had no list of employers that qualified. They could not tell people if their employer qualified because they didn't have a list to check it and verify it with. They didn't even have a way to verify if your employer met the requirements of the program uh, it's it's a wonder that anyone got accepted with the way that this program was won uh cost cutting measures uh putting it out to private contractors you know the these private contractors these student loan companies that facilitate student loans for the government it's so much is being skimmed off the top of that as well and now we have Betsy DeVos in office saying that states who are trying to have some kind of accountability for these student loan companies, uh, states are suing them, attorney generals. Even the Kansas attorney general, a very conservative attorney general, spoke out against it when Betsy DeVos told the courts that states can't sue the, uh, the, these student loan providers because they're federal agents and states can't sue the federal government. Uh, and even it was an opinion so ridiculous even Kansas, even the Kansas Attorney General had to say wait a second. What what are you even talking about?
1: Yeah, it's the student loan industry and you know, obviously this is the student the, uh, the public service loan forgiveness program is basically the best case scenario for student loans. This is the best way to get your loan forgiven um, that's available to most people. Uh, this, is, this is the best that's available. The vast, vast, vast majority of people just have to pay off all of their student loan debt. Through working, through living in poverty, it's the debt that we force people to go through just to be able to acquire a middle-class job, air quotes, middle-class. The, the hoops that we have forced force people to go through and the burden that we place them under, I would almost compare it to indentured servitude, especially because that debt cannot be discharged by bankruptcy or by any other measure except for a very specific federal programs. Um... People are locked into this for life. Often the only way to rid yourself of the debt is to die. And student loans are a major factor in suicide rates. There are so many people talking about suicide because of their student loans. This is a massive burden, especially on millennials, especially on the next generation, Gen Z or whatever. This is such an enormous burden placed on our society. Just... This huge barrier preventing people from acquiring the skills to be more viable uh, members of the society, this gatekeeping that goes on and the pressures that we put people under under. It's unconscionable. And the fact that even the most, you know, even the most permissive, even the most comprehensive loan forgiveness program, the public service loan forgiveness program is so restrictive and so convoluted and so hard to understand. And with so many regulatory issues, and now the Trump administration pushing back against it, this, this entire system is completely broken. It's not functioning. Student loans were supposed to be a way to help, lo- you know, introduced, you know, in the middle of the century, were supposed to be a way to help low income people, disadvantaged people to attain education and to become, to better themselves in society, to be able to enter the middle class. It was supposed to be a way to enhance your class status, to make yourself more useful to society and to reap greater rewards. That was sort of a part of the social contract of uh, mid-century America. But under the neoliberal system and with the student loan system that we have now, uh, it just doesn't work that way anymore. It's stopped being a rung on a ladder and started being an oiled patch on the floor, another trap to catch you as you go down and to put you in debt and bondage towards your bourgeois overlords. And I don't really see any way to defend it.
0: Yeah, it's the sort of situation. I mean, my mom got student loans back in the 90s. When she was going to nursing school, you know, she's, she's in a respected career path. People, people say become a nurse. And, you know, she's got a good, good job in, in that field. And she's been doing this for almost 30 years at this point or something like that. And it's, it's the sort of situation that she's still paying off her student loans. And they, they followed her around. They, through, every financial crisis my family ever had, they followed, their, followed them around. And it's it's a real noose around people's neck. I mean, it, the, these news articles that go on about how millennials are killing this and that and the other, millennials don't buy houses anymore. Well, you know why millennials don't buy houses anymore? The student loan debt has racked up so much people can barely, can't even qualify for the loans. To, to get a mortgage for a house because they have so much student loan debt. And it's, it is a serious bottleneck on the economy. And it's, it's something that people have to realize that this is not a tenable situation. And I, I, the, the, uh, this is the problem, too, that by having these student loan amounts, schools know exactly how much you can take out and schools figure this in. And schools will say, well, you got this scholarship and this grant and this loan, so that's what tuition's going to be. And they, no matter how much, how forgiving of a program you have, it's always going to be exploited by these colleges and these universities that uh, take advantage of the situation to earn a quick profit for themselves. So, uh, it's. It's the sort of situation that I am terribly sympathetic to folks who find themselves in this burdensome situation. And I think it's also worth pointing out that, you know, for the direct forgiveness program where you just, you just make minimum payments essentially for like 20 or 30 years and then it's forgiven at the end of that. One, that program, I don't expect that program to last much longer. And two, uh, people are finding themselves, that counts as income. When those loans are forgiven, that counts as income. So people have been hit with these huge tax bills, these huge colossal tax bills that, you know, they have $100,000 worth of debt forgiven, and then the IRS counts that as income, and now you have to pay taxes on $100,000 of income, on whatever income you were making. And now they're in debt to the IRS. And guess what? The government doesn't play around when you're in debt to it. So it's... It's, it's just a bad situation all around. And we have to be vigilant against people like Betsy DeVos who represent the interests of these universities who want to push tuition ever higher, who represent the interests of these student loan companies that profit immensely from these programs whose administrators and whose executives make fabulous amounts of money for, for what? for facilitating a system that is uh, as close as you're going to get to modern day indentured servitude of being permanently tied to a debt that is non-dischargeable.
1: Exactly. And I had an experience that I think a lot of other people my age are having, which is that I was only able to pay off my student loan. And I had a relatively small one. I went to community college, um, which is obviously says a lot about my economic class. But I, uh, I had several thousand dollars in student loan debt. And the only way I was able to pay it off is that my grandmother died. And she wasn't fabulously wealthy, but she was able to leave a few thousand dollars for me. And I inherited just enough money to pay off my student loan, just barely. And that's the only way that I was able to escape that burden, and a lot of other people are finding the only way for them to advance in this economy, uh, short of getting lucky with a technology job, the only way for them to advance is to inherit wealth from their relatives, from their parents, and from their grandparents. That's, many people expect that the only way they'll ever inherit a house is going to be when their parents die and uh just the 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 difference in the social outcomes and the economic outcomes for people between you know there's a lot of resentment between you know boomers and millennials you see it crop up on the internet all the time uh the two groups writing articles sniping at each other uh having arguments on reddit or whatever uh obviously in a marxist sense this is a sort of false consciousness where the economic conditions of the world are misinterpreted in terms of uh, generations opposing each other rather than economic classes. But there is an element of truth that when one generation uh, exists during a very prosperous time, when they have a great amount of economic power and freedom, and uh, they're able to accumulate large amounts of wealth, and then you have a younger generation, which is much poorer, which is under much uh, greater burdens of debt, um, it's not you you end up with a a difference in the balance of the classes between the generations
0: well i think that's as good of a place to draw the curtains on this episode and you know bring this this train wreck of misery to to an end i i promise that with the next episode i will seek to be more optimistic but today was just not one of those days unfortunately that the world is shitty but remember we we are in the position that we can try to make the world less shitty through our actions
1: we're we're in this together, and though the world may be shitty at least we have gritty
0: fantastic that was that was beautiful so i will I will put this episode on ice and save it until it must be resurrected once more to save the uh population or whatever i don't actually know what i'm saying right now so let's 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 just bring this to a close so as always i can be contacted at humvadev Fay can be contacted at la underscore socialist ra
1: that's correct
0: fantastic and you know if you enjoyed the musical outro or intro, or intermission, or any musical thing that appears on this podcast. Essentially, uh, those are those are created by Faye uh, with the help. I believe the uh, intro outro was created with the help of our member ally as well. Um, they they are quite quite good. And if you ever want to support Faye's burgeoning career as an indie leftist musician, then hit her up and i'm sure she'll she'll have some manner of being able to do that
1: i can uh, i can give it a shot i guess
0: definitely we will we will make the musician caucus of the sra a thing one one musician at a time with that <coughs> as i slowly die and cough up this lung remember to seize the means of production.
1: Solidarity forever.